This is a re- recording made in the chapter of the open book under the title The Form of Sound Words and we come to the letter F in our alphabetical uh, distribution of subject matter and the subject before us is the word fullness. On the chart that you have in front of you, you see that following it is the word foundation. And when we come to that, we shall, I think, show you uh, that the word translated before the foundation of the world goes back to Genesis 1 verse 2, where instead of it being founding, it means confounding, overthrowing. And uh, consequently, I'm going to look at Genesis 1 verse 2, not for the word foundation this time, because that needs proving, but for one that's on the surface. Genesis 1 verse 2. Now there's no date in the words in the beginning. You can't put down any date of a month or a year. That's right back in the beginning, whenever it was. However many ages past it may mean, God created the heavens and the earth. So far as time is concerned, time begins at verse 2, when something occurred, and the earth was, all this will have to be gone into intimately next time, God willing, we'll leave it for the moment, and the earth was without form and void. Form and void. V-O-I-D is just about the opposite of the word fullness. And so there came into this world something that demanded reformation and reparation and refilling and it was a part of the redeeming love of God that that should take place. Now first of all, dealing with the word fullness, as we look at it in the epistles, it's a majestic word. When you think of the statement that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We can only look at the words and we can surmise a little what they mean. But isn't it remarkable that Christ himself, who if anyone knew what the word meant, he did, he stoops to use the most simple homely illustration for the essential meaning of this word fullness. So the first thing we're going to do is not going to look at the doctrine of the fullness which comes in Paul's epistles or even in John the first chapter but we're going to look at something which at least the ladies of our meeting will be acquainted sometime or another and that is a patch in a torn garment. Now would you look at Matthew the ninth chapter verse 16 and this is where the word fullness comes in the New Testament and it's in the lips of Christ. Matthew 9.16 No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment and the rent is made worse. Now that which is put in to fill it up is the fullness. That's the very word that we have here, the pleroma, the fullness. P-L-E, you see, enters into our word complete The word pre-Roma meaning something which is filled to the full. But Christ says it's over against, not merely emptiness, but it's over against a rent. 
something that which is torn, something which is broken. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void. There's a rent. There's a rent. There's something broken. Now, Christ is the fullness, and he steps in and fills it, brings back a perfected universe, universe to lay at the feet of the Father that God may be all in all. So it's good to have his own definition, his own use of it. Now that we have here, the old garment with its rent, and the patch, as it were, put in, is not of a material that will cause the other to be distorted and destroyed, but will blend with it and bring it back. Of course, we must not take this subject further than he intended. There's no idea that the glorious new creation that's coming will be a patched up affair. Not a bit. But I think you'd agree with me if human beings can advertise that they will give you invisible mending. I believe in the city you can still see uh, places where you can take garments and they guarantee to give you the thing restored without the possibility of seeing what they've done. It's re, as it were, knitting, uh, re, not mending, but re-weaving. I, I did see uh, an exhibition in one of the windows just round here by Liverpool Street. Two cards were in the window. One was a piece of cloth with a hole which had been burnt in it, and the other was the piece of cloth which was completely restored. And you say, isn't that wonderful how they've done it? Because they hadn't. It was just two pieces of cloth, just showing you what they intended to do. But what, whether they could have done it so that it looked like the second piece, that's another question. But what God does is perfect. So that's the beginning. It's something which has been done by God to rectify a rent that was brought into existence by uh, apparently evil. But I think we've got enough in front of us to, this afternoon to keep to the word fullness. Although we shall not be able to, to give it full consideration without the balancing thought of emptiness. Now that may be, that may be an opportunity for me to say, why did we pick on the first half of Philippians 2 as our reading? Those of you who are listening to this tape recording, you will not have known that unless I've told you just this minute, that we were looking at Philippians chapter 2 just as our reading before the recording took place. And you will remember that it speaks about Christ, who, originally existing in his own right, in the form of God, made himself of no reputation, our version says. Well, that's a fairly easy-going rendering. But the word kenosis, which is lifted out from that word, the word means to empty, to empty. Now, how a person can empty himself is beyond me to explain. All I'm saying is that Christ himself is, is said to have emptied himself. Now, don't you see how this comes in? If there is going to be placed or made to reside or be accomplished by him all the fullness of God, in him shall dwell all the fullness that redemption brings, well, he emptied himself in order that that fullness may be there. For it's not a fullness that he needs, it's a fullness that we need. So just in the same way, he who was Lord and Creator made a, was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour that he may be laid far above angels for our sakes because he was originally and must be all the time 
above angels. So we've got this word fullness and the word emptiness. Fullness in Ephesians and the emptying, the self-emptying in Philippians. Or to take another figure along the same lines, we have the exceeding riches that are associated with Christ. And yet you know the passage I'm going to quote in the epistle to the Corinthians, he who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. So he laid aside riches that were his own, because he was going to produce and procure riches for us. And then when that was done, he would take up that which belonged to him and be in that glory forever. Now the first passage we'll turn to for the use of this word fullness is in the Gospel according to John, the first chapter. I think that will give us a start in the use of this expression. The first 18 verses of John's Gospel are called the prologue, or a preface, or an introduction. The Gospel itself commences at verse 19. This is the record of John. So, in the... um, In these opening verses, it speaks about Christ, and we'll pick it up at verse 14. At verse 14, and the word was made flesh. So here's the stoop down again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him. That is a self-emptying, isn't it? If he was in that glorious position, he became flesh. And the word dwelt among us, is to dwell in a tent or a tabernacle. He was only going to dwell among us temporarily. He was only going to stay here a little season. He was going back, as it says in this very Gospel of John, knowing that he came from God and went to God. What if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was, you see? So here's again the emptying and the filling. So the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Now the the uh, wording that follows in the original uh, is not quite given in our version. Our version says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, But there's a sort of feeling as though you would have to read it like this. That sort of glory that you would associate with that sort of begotten of a father. If you can think of a begotten son of a father like that, then you'll know what sort of glory he had. It's a difficult thing to express, but that seems to be what is in the mind. But I'm getting now to our word, full. Full. See, the word became flesh, or he stooped down. He emptied himself. He laid aside his glory. He left his riches behind. He became poor. But here he was, full of grace and truth. We'll have to think about that grace and truth in a minute. But we go down, verse 16, he picks it up again. Full of grace and truth. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Now, first of all, grace and truth. That doesn't mean two things. That is to say, there's grace and there's truth. If you go through John's Gospel, you'll find he uses the word true, not as something which is over against a lie, which it is, 
but over against a type or a shadow. For instance, Christ said, I am the true vine, and my father is a husbandman. Well, he didn't mean to say that all those people who were earning their living by growing vines just outside where he was speaking, that none of those vines were in existence. Oh, he said, they are there, but really and truly they're pictures of me. I am the true. I am the anti-typical. They are types of me. He said, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and they did. I'm the true bread. He didn't mean to say that it's a, it's a lie that they had manna in the wilderness. He said, oh no, that bread that came down from heaven was only a picture of me. I'm the true and when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said, I am the true and living way. Those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, the word true is the real thing over against the type and the shadow. So shall we put it this way? The only begotten the Father, full of true, antitypical, gospel grace. The real thing. Would you say, what do you mean by the real thing? Well, in the Old Testament, it wasn't the real thing. It was the shadow, wasn't it? Let Christ, let the scriptures say, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. You see? Although they're in the Old Testament. They were not the real thing. They were only pictures of the one sacrifice for sins forever. So we're not belittling the Old Testament. We're putting it in its place. Old Testament shadow, New Testament reality. Now we'll come on again then. Verse 16, And of his fullness, out of that fullness, which belongs to him, as the Christ who stooped and became a man for us, out of his fullness have all we received, now, and grace for grace. The little word for has to translate a number of little particles in the New Testament, and... Uh, it may seem a little bit strange to say grace for grace. What does it mean? But supposing you saw that the word for was the word anti. And the word anti brings before your mind a pair of scales. Like that. One thing balancing another. One thing equivalent to another. One thing over against another. You see, like that. He gave his life an anti-neutron. He gave his life a ransom corresponding price for your, for your liberty. Not against you, anti, but over against you, balancing one with the other. Whatever the price for our redemption, he paid it. Well, let's get a bit, let's get to the next verse, 17. For that starts with the word for. Now this is another word altogether. This is the logical word, introducing an argument. He said, I'll tell you what I mean when I say grace, for grace. For. The law was given by Moses. Now that had grace in it. God condescended in grace to give the type and shadow of the Passover lamb or the offering on the Day of Atonement on the first fruits of the resurrection. They were all wonderful shadows of Christ, weren't they? But they were shadows. They weren't the real thing. So he says the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth, all oh no, grace, the true thing, the gospel thing, came through Jesus Christ. So there you've got the first thought about fullness. It's the over against the type and the shadow. This is the reality. Well now of course we look at other references but I think it's time now to look at the ones which we have suggested on this chart. Let's turn to the epistle to the Ephesians 
and to the Colossians. Oh, we can't turn to both of them at the same time, can we? All right, one after the other. Uh, Ephesians first, and see the way in which this word is distributed in these two epistles. And I think if we give those a consideration, we should at least have brought before our minds some of the wonderful things that are associated in the mind of God with this word which our Saviour originally used as a type, a picture of the homely thing, the patching of a garment. It's very wonderful to think that our Saviour knew all about patching clothes, all about sweeping rooms because you'd lost something, all about the very simplest homely chores that go on in a village home. He who left the glory and is one day going to be acknowledged by heaven and earth and things under the earth. He knew those things. There's the emptying, the self-emptying. There's the filling and filling on our account. Now Ephesians uses the word you will see in four places. Chapter 1 verse 10, chapter 1 23, chapter 3 19 and chapter 4 13. Let's look at the first one. Chapter 1 verse 10 of Ephesians. You know that we have in times past drawn attention as a guide to our thoughts that we can subdivide verses 3 to 14 under three headings. You must forgive me if I repeat it because it may be useful to those who are listening to me presently. The first verses 3, 4, 5 and 6 have not a word to say about sin, not a word to say about redemption. They take you back before the foundation of the world to consider the will of the Father. The will of the Father. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now then, the moment you come to verse 7, we come to redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Now this we can denominate the work of the Son. So we have the will of the Father choosing us, the work of the Son, the Word made flesh, coming down on our account, redeeming us, and then, finally, we have, um, in verse 13, in whom we ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of the truth, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest. So we can keep the words, the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. It's only just an alliteration, but it may help you. And then you'll see it's punctuated by the words, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, and verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, and the end of verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. So we have three verses with a chorus, unto the praise of his glory. That may help you to see how the subject matter is distributed. Now we want to look at the word fullness, so we must leave all the other part of it, before the foundation of the world comes before us in verse 10, and that will be our study next time we meet together, it's on the program, you see, so we'll leave that for, it for the time being. Let's look at the work of the Son. In verse 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now you know what I'm going to say, I dare say that it doesn't seem possible that you can abound, for this word means to be prodigal. The original word means to fill a cup and let it run over. It doesn't matter, you've got it plenty. 
Again, it says with prudence. Well, prudence will be very, very careful. Well, you say it says so. Ah, but you see, our verses have been made by a printer. Just uh, two or three centuries ago, it was made convenient, and it is useful to have verses, otherwise we couldn't use a concordance. But sometimes, you've got to watch that you don't get misled. So, let's go back again to verse 7, and ignore commas, full stops, and all the breaks, for they're not there, and see what, what we can make of it. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us. Now, full stop. See, that's true, isn't it? Now then, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery, you see the difference? When it's your salvation, God is abounding towards you. When he's teaching you the mystery, it's step by step and little by little. Well, you know that, don't you? So we've lost nothing, not even a comma. We don't have to bother about that. It's not there. So in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, now there we have the word fullness. Now there are two words, there may be more, but there are two outstanding words that are translated time in the scriptures. There is chronos, which is the time of a clock, and there is this word which means a harvest, or a seed time, a season. You see, it's November now, and in this country we are approaching winter. But it's the same time in the afternoon, the meeting here, if it's in midsummer. So we've got a difference between time and season. So it says, there is a dispensation of the fullness of the seasons. And God, you see, has a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And he has one of the aspects of that purpose. So, in spite of all the, well, what should I say, vanity and vexation of spirit, to quote the words of one man who saw the emptiness of things, in spite of all the frustration that you and I feel, in spite of all that we read of in the papers and wonder what's going to happen next, when we look a bit further down the story, God takes control and he begins to work. It's all with a view to a dispensation of fullness. No wonder the scripture says, I have not seen nor ear heard, either as it entered the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, not your eye, not your ear, but he has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, as far as it's humanly possible for us to take in now. But one day, that fullness is going to be entered completely. And all the emptiness and all the vanity and all the vexation of Spirit will be forever behind us. So, adopt the attitude of some of our friends who've had to go to hospital and been told, as one of them here is, well, you've got that for the rest of your life. And you know, there are two ways. You can go to the doctor and he says, well, you've got that disease for the rest of your life. Say, I've got to have that all my life. Like that, you see. Or the other one says, oh, I've got it just for this life. That's all. Same length of time. Same number of years. Oh, what a different attitude, isn't it? You see, friends, I'm not making light of your troubles. No, no. I'm entering into them and sympathising with you. But do see the two different points of view. You've got to have it all your life. Well, it's only going to last for this life, just the same length of time, and then glory for me, you see? So it makes a difference. 
For there is a fullness that God is, has in his purpose, and it's vested in his Son. The fullness doesn't come in the first part, it comes in the second, the work of the Son. And the work of the Son is to redeem and bring back that which was lost. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, then the next one is in chapter 123. Now, there's a link between verse 10 and chapter 23, which you wouldn't quite see in the uh, English version. Let me read it again. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one. Now, anyone who is reading the original will see that the word carefully, which is the word head, occurs in that verse 10, only in a verbal form. The word kephali, head, is kephaliomai, the verb, and it means to head up. You see, to gather together in one is to head up under one head. That's what God's going to do, are things in heaven and things on earth in him. There will not be a solitary exception. When that glorious day arrives, everyone, however far down the scale they'll be, will be lined up with regard to Christ as head over all things. And that's God's guarantee with regard to the eternal future. So knowing that he says he will head up all things in the future, he says to you and to me, and if you belong to the church which is the one body, you are a little picture of what God is going to do. So we'll find that out, shall we? He says, verse um, 21, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that just to come. So you see, this is very, is practically universal. Heaven and earth, named things and unnamed. And have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head. Here's the word carefully. So he's going to head up all things, and here he's going to be the head over a little company. Who? You and me. The church to which we belong is a little miniature of the great day when there shall be that gathering to the very ends of the earth who, like this church, finds its all in Christ. That's the purpose of God. So he says, And gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body. The church which is his body. Stop there, and that's a glorious title, isn't it? To be told that you are so linked with Christ as the members of your body are joined together and all under the direction of the head? What a wonderful union, isn't it? That's much deeper than a king and a subject. But it goes more than that. He hasn't finished yet. It says this church, which is made up of, mainly made up of Gentiles, but including any Jew that puts his trust in Christ just now, so it's irrespective of what nationality or race you belong to. If you belong to this company, you are the fullness of him. Fullness of him. But who is he? He is the one that fills all. Isn't that extraordinary? You are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That what he is to the whole purpose of God, you can be to him. And if I haven't explained it, it's because I don't know any more about it. I think once sometimes these things baffle our explanation. They only bring before us a picture of something overwhelmingly wonderful. We can, we can believe that in Christ dwells all the fullness. But to believe that we form a part of the fullness of him, 
is a subject that ought to make us sit and think very seriously. Well now let's go on because of time. And chapter 3 brings this section of Ephesians to an end. Chapter 4 starts the outworking of it. But the section of chapter 3 ends with a prayer. And the prayer is a link between the doctrine and the practice. Prayer should be turning scripture into everyday life. It's the sort of alchemy that goes on. And so he says, now, I pray for you. Uh, Verse uh, 14, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family or every family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. This is something, isn't it? Can you comprehend breadth, length, depth, and height? Oh, you say, yes. Well, I can't, friends. You can't? No. Arithmetic was always one of my weak spots. But I've got as far as this, that I can comprehend what is breadth, and length, and depth. And that's all I can do in this life. If you want to know the cubic capacity of this chapel, you take the breadth, and the length, and the heights, and you've got it, there's nothing more you can do. But this says four things. This says breadth, and length, and depth, and height. We're right in the middle of immensity. I'm not saying this is the fourth dimension that mathematics speak of, but it's right outside of our scope. And then he says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So in a game we're baffled. How could we know something which passes knowledge? We can only know it bit by bit, little by little, as the days go by until at last in his presence we shall know even as we are known. And then he comes back to us and says that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now you've got to watch these little tiny words, with, because to say that you or I could be filled with all the fullness of God is a contradiction, isn't it? Because if I were filled with all the fullness of God, there wouldn't be any left for you, would there? But if you could imagine a child down at the seaside with its little bucket filled with the sea water and comes to its mother or father, well, you say, yes, but there's plenty more left behind. You see, this is not filled with, but it's filled up to. Filled up to all the fullness of God. You say, what does that mean? This is the measure of the gift of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7. And unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. I don't know what your measure is in the sight of God. A half a pint, a pint, quart, a gallon. See, we're all different. The Apostle Paul was a different measure than I am, certainly. But I shan't be judged if I don't contain as much as the Apostle Paul. But I shall be judged if I might have been filled to the brim of as only half full. That's the trouble. That we might be filled right up to whatever our capacity should be. So now you see it's brought it round 
uh, a bit more to experience in the third one. Goal. God has a goal that we, the church of the one body, should be the fullness of him. But he says, don't forget, I want an echo of that in your daily life. And here it is. And then finally, chapter 4, 13, where it comes right out into practice. Chapter 4, 13. It says that the ascended Christ, he gave some apostles, verse 11. So that is not Peter, James and John. They are apostles. But they weren't appointed by the ascended Christ. But you could, you're told that he walked along by the seashore and he called them. And this means what it says, that after Christ ascended, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers and they had a special work to do for the perfecting of the saints. For the, uh, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of a ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure, here's a measure again, of the stature of the fullness of the Christ. So before us is that standard, that before us is the measure of a perfect man. And the perfect man is to be the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Christ. Again, I say the words in the scripture. I have an inkling of what they mean. And you may have an inkling of what I mean, but I think you'll realise that this goes beyond our ability to put it down in black and white or speak in ordinary terms. Don't let that stop us, because if God is working, we could very often, we must very often have a, a reason to say, well, this goes beyond me. We'll be like Moses. We'll see the burning bush. We'll know it was there. It'll bring a conviction to us, but however it burned and wasn't consumed, he didn't know to the end of his days, and neither will we. So there are four occasions which I commend to you that we may think about this word fullness. But as I have a limited time, not undue time, we'll turn to the other four references in the Epistle to the Colossians. The Epistle to the Colossians. And I'm afraid uh, we should have to just draw attention to them without dwelling too deeply upon them. Now this is uh, chapter 1. 19. Right in the middle of a tremendous argument. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. You will find that this is in a context where we have deliverance from the authority of darkness. We have a context where we are translated into the kingdom. We have redemption. We have creation. We have the reconciliation. We have the ultimate presentation. Oh, what a fullness. And in him, all the fullness dwells on our account. Let's look at the next one. Chapter 2, 9. He's warning them now. He says, verse 8, beware. Whenever you read the word beware, it's a warning, isn't it? Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and empty. See, the word vain there is a word that has the thought of emptiness in it as well. A vain, empty philosophy. It doesn't say all philosophy, that would be silly, because philosophy might be true. But he says, I'm warning you against a vain, empty, deceitful philosophy. 
after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. A little bit further down, you could get the same sequence. He says, um, about those who in verse 18, he says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. He could spend half a day trying to know what that means, but he says, don't bother, and not holding the head. That's, best, that's the best thing. When they are engaged with all that rigmarole, they are not holding the head. So you may be engaged with all this rigmarole of philosophy and tradition and the rudimentary elements and not after Christ. In whom? For in him, instead of being vain and empty philosophy, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him, the Christ who became man. Well then we'll move on to chapter, uh, what is that one? Oh, uh, uh, back again, in, am I going back again? Oh, that's it, that's the, um, no, that must be a mistake there. No, I, I'll have to look, look that up and mention it next time, I've, I've gone adrift there. But time, you see, in the, um, in chapter 2, 9, we've got, uh, yes, they've got, oh, I may be placing those uh, over against these on this side, so that we may see that he's taking a double line with regard to this word fullness, to balance the four in Ephesians. I think that was in my mind. That you look at those two get together and you look at those two together. But it's been rather a pity to pack those in the end of our study. But at the same time it may do us a great deal of good. Because when a person says, well, dear friends, that's the end of that subject. Well, you may say to yourself, well, it might be. But not one of us can shut the book and say, well, we know all about that. What can we, what can we talk about next? Oh, it's there till the end of time. And what a blessed thought, because there's very few of us escape that touch of the emptiness of things around us many times. But what a consolation to know in the midst of it all, that our Saviour is the one who fills all. Now he can fill you up to the measure that God has given, filled to the brim. And one day, all these things are going to vanish. And what is going to abide and remain will be that glorious fullness which we find resident in him.